For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast on the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. Boys, boys, gather round. <laughs> I had a vision last night. No, Kissel, do not I, be laughed. I'm not laughing. Do not be laughed because I know it's because you're afeard. You're afeard of change. <laughs> but right. listen, boys. I am. I'm listening. I had a vision. A man came to me while I was asleep last night. He came in through the balcony door. Like, he actually walked through the window. He opened up the sliding glass door and he walked in. Yeah. And he was beautiful. He had two flashlights attached to, I believe, some sort of football gear. <laughs> On his shoulders, shoulder pads. And he told me that there was a place where I could go where I could find a hidden series of plates in a box. Yes, again, I know. All right. I know that all of this sounds ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a fairy tale. Yes. No, I was laughing, but now I'm not laughing anymore. <laughs> listen I, I to me. Know. Listen to me, brethren. Listen to me. And I went and I found these plates and I looked at them. And they told me an incredible story of a little brown-haired girl that was homeless that she found redemption in the arms of... Jim Belushi. <laughs> Jim Belushi. <laughs> and it was an incredible story. And I, her name was Quirly Suya. <laughs> Interesting. Incredible. But there's a last chapter, which I have to show you guys. It's, it's, I am still shook with the beauty of what I've seen. It's called Golden Shower Teddy Bear Pick. <laughs> no, listen. I listen don't know. It was the last chapter. And some of these plates... We're quite graphic. <laughs> Very, so you basically, you fell asleep while watching Curly Sue after you jerked off to pee porn. Is that what's going on? I had a vision. <laughs> hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the last podcast on the left. I am Benjamin Grant Kissel, along with Marcus Jordan Parks. Oh, thank you for remembering my middle name. It's You have a great name. Thank MJP. You. And then we have Henry Thomas Zabrowski right over there in Los Angeles. <laughs> You wouldn't believe how the teddy bears were dancing and pissing. <laughs> I don't. How the teddy bears had little human pierces. Really? And oh, how the smiles on their teddy bears' faces as they found exultation in the drinking and the gargling of the urine of the other the captain bears, which is what they call themselves in these leather overalls. Uh-huh. Very excited. I can't believe how many of them peed fully erect. Wow, what a visionary. I would love if you started a cult, Henry, because the, your followers would be some of the stinkiest boys around. The angel 
Sammy, <laughs> he um, won't leave my house. <laughs> okay, you have a homeless man living at your house. <laughs> it's, I'm starting to gather evidence, <laughs> and it seems that that is the, that, that is the case. All <laughs> right, everyone, we are on to part two of our long series uh, on Mormonism. So let's get to Mormonism part two. So when we last left Joseph Smith, the angel Moroni had finally allowed Joseph to bring the fabled golden plates home to begin the translation of the Book of Mormon. Or at least, that's what the Mormons believe. That's what they have to believe. <laughs> yes. And, of course, the angel Moroni, uh, it, he, was, he had to finish all the spaghetti on his plate before he could read the, uh, what the plate said. Oh, Ladies and God. gentlemen, I want you to prepare yourself. Because that's not the last joke on Men from Queens that this episode is going to provide. So just be ready. And from what Joseph Smith told his followers at the time, and this tells you a lot about Mormonism, the retrieval of the book was a process that spanned four years, and the entire thing was absolutely fraught with ritual. Ooh. See, Joseph Smith was told that he had to purify himself of greed before taking the golden plates and that he would have to return once a year for four years straight before he could finally take the plates home. God, that's like showing up at Popeye's for that chicken sandwich one day a year for four years and just having to stand outside of the restaurant and look in the windows and masturbate. (laughs) I will say this is a good lesson for him, though, right? Because he was a grave robber. He was greedy. He was. So this is actually pretty. This is this is pretty good. But still. That's the thing that Joseph was not super pure because he still tried to take the plates each time he went. I shall have them. Oh, how shiny they are. <laughs> and then Moroni has to be like, get out of here, you're not ready. Come on, kid. You know you're not ready. Yeah, and he was stopped each time. Like, what did he say? Like, didn't he say that he uh, was shocked when he tried to grab the plate so that he felt some yeah. sort of, like, uh, I guess he felt some sort of uh, energy that kept him from taking them? Yes, he touched them and literally a bolt of electricity went through his body. He went, Whoa! and Moroni just went, hey, 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 the buzzer. <laughs> it's like when you put the dog collar on a dog and then it shocks them when they leave the yard. Mm-hmm. We tried to do that with my dog growing up, which I don't recommend. It's very mean. But all the dog does is have to run 10 feet, to get through the pain. Yeah. And then they never come home again. <laughs> I tell you what, it really worked on my sister, though. You did that with Jackie? <laughs> yeah. That's what made her such a pit bull. <laughs> but that electric shock only came on the first two times. On the third time that Joseph Smith tried taking the plates, he was stopped by an actual creature. (gasps) See, on that night, according to one source, the angel was maybe going to let Joseph Smith take the plates, so Joseph was instructed to wear black clothes to the retrieval and to arrive riding a black horse with a switching tail. Now, this is a part of the story that is true, is that he did have to dress, and and we'll get into this far deeper in the next two episodes, into deeply ceremonial gear. He used to cover himself in black and leave. Seems to be that in in reality, this was an instruction from Joseph Smith's father. Well, when Smith arrived at the stone box to retrieve the plates on the third time, and I'm simplifying this because it is highly confusing, he found that there was, along with the book, something like a toad inside. Oh, cool. And that toad soon assumed the appearance of a man-like thing. Hey, Joey. <laughs> it's so good to see you again. 
<laughs> I think maybe this time you could take me home. Huh? No, no, foul beast. That is not how it works in Joe's world. This is Joe's world, and you're just living in it. Oh, really? It so Joseph Smith came up with the cliche, it's my world and you're just living in it? Yes, I certainly didn't borrow anything. <laughs> really? It's also interesting, a toad uh, tr- transform, uh, transforming is a titular point in the film Psychomania. That's true. Yes, indeed. That's a deep hmm. cut for our horror fans. Well, when Smith reached into the box to retrieve the book, the Toad Man punched him in the side of the head. What? Get out of here! <laughs> Battle Get out Toad! Of here. <laughs> you can take me home. It's either me and the plates and all, but... Oh, my God. I can just see him with his little cane and his top hat. What a cute Toad! <laughs> and it happened again and again. Joseph kept trying to search... Why are you place. striking me, Frogman? Why are you striking me? Honestly... I'm mad. I'm mad at the way I was born. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I check out of Mormonism. I can't be following a leader who got beat up by a Toad. There's no way you gotta beat up the toad. I'm sorry. You got one rule as a human to beat up the toad. And finally, the toad man told Joseph, You haven't followed the rules, so you gotta wait another year. You're not telling me all the rules. I'm just making them up as I go. I guess I will come back in a year from now because I've got fuck else to do. Besides, become a more powerful right hand path magician. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now, over the course of this series, I'm gonna be saying the words, I think. A lot. Okay. Because Mormon theology is some of the most confusing shit I've ever read. And we're probably going to get some shit wrong. I mean, we're not Mormon scholars here. Even Mormons who study this shit their entire lives don't know this story that well. All right. It's going to probably surprise you all out there. There's like a lot of sources for this topic. <laughs> really? There's like a lot of material written on it. And just to go through it, apparently, <laughs> some people devote their entire lives to understanding this topic. <laughs> and so we're just like getting into it. But I do believe sometimes in the confusion, a lot of it, what it's supposed to be, is that it really is just about, Marcus, do you have the fucking stones to say that you believe in one thing or not, Mm. or are you going to be a flip-flopper? Whoa, (laughs) don't say that. Well, part of this confusion has to do with the fact that while Joseph Smith was a fantastic oral storyteller and a fantastic public speaker, he wasn't all that great when it came to the written word. So he's like a Sasha Gray type. (laughs) Very interesting. What? She told it. I've never read her short stories. (laughs) Oh, you don't think that she told oral stories? That was a whole thing. You're just talking about pornography. No, but she had a story arc in her art <laughs> and in addition you got to remember that again mormonism by its very nature is an improvised religion and joseph told different stories to different people at different times in his life concerning the origins of the book of mormon and furthermore many religions like say catholicism are complicated by design because if you've got a belief system that's simple and easy to understand what the fuck do you need a priest in a church for mm. But the interesting thing about the Book of Mormon is that originally it was supposed to be just that, a book. See, the Smith family was once again in financial trouble, and Joseph was trying to figure out a way to contribute to his family fortunes. Yeah, dude, this is like fucking Flubber. <laughs> he had to get, he had to save the camp. Yeah. They were coming and they were going to take the camp. Big people were going to buy his family's farm, so we, his back was against the wall. Right. He got a bunch of little misfits, and he put together a baseball team, and he taught them how to write the book, and them and the misfits and all the kids from the fat camp, <laughs> they all got together, and they beat. 
Jesus Christ wow, you just, into creating a new religion. You just combined so many movies in this analogy. It's amazing. But Flubber, if you go back and watch, of course, it's surrounding about a basket. It's about a basketball game. Uh-huh. And the only way that white people can jump is through the magic of science. It's cheating. <laughs> and cheating. Well, Joseph had the idea for a story that would give a new history to the Americas because that was a hot topic at the time. Like, what was America like before Columbus came? Oh, I wonder if there's a whole group of indigenous people. <laughs> Perhaps we could ask them, what was this land like? <laughs> nah, nah, come on, that's boring. They're liars. And all they oh, do is, is right? complain about all the shit we do. Huh. <laughs> but the problem was that while Joseph Smith could read, he could not write. Really? And that is actually something that is a bit of a misnomer about Joseph Smith, because many people called Joseph Smith illiterate. But the thing was that they were using illiterate in the sense of the time. See, back then, illiterate could mean that you could read, but you couldn't write. Yeah, if you couldn't write, it was called a writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's someone who was extremely stupid, very low intelligence, who constantly drops Snickers wrappers on the ground. They're illiterate. An idiot literate. An idiot literate. <laughs> You know what, folks? You know, it's not all gold. We've only been doing this for 400 episodes, okay? It's not all going to be crash my car, I'm laughing so hard. So just take your PT Cruiser and just go 65 and have a safe trip home, all right? Well, the other thing that Joseph Smith knew from his treasure hunting days is that if you really wanted to sell something, you needed a hook. So Joseph Smith gave his story divine provenance, i.e. visitations from God, Jesus, and an angel named Moroni. Mm. See, the Book of Mormon, at its core, is really the synthesis of a bunch of different stories that were floating around America at the time. You can also say the same thing about Shakespeare. Shakespeare, um, uh, all five of him, uh, the multiplicity group that was (laughs) Shakespeare, stole stories from the past and repackaged them in fun ways. Mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. That's because one of Joseph Smith's greatest strengths was the ability to take all these different stories and cast them in a new light, which honestly isn't necessarily a bad or even uncommon practice in modern fiction. And for just a couple of examples, like, say, The Invisibles, one of our favorites here. The Invisibles is a gigantic pastiche of dozens of different sources, and it actually rips pretty heavily from Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy. And as far as, like, TV goes, the framework for Battlestar Galactica Mm. is mostly ripped from the Book of Mormon. How? Battlestar Galactica was created by a Mormon. The 12, you know, like the 12 really? colonies, you know, the planet Cobol, you know, in Mormonism, it's Kolob. Yeah, the creator of Battlestar Galactica was a hardcore Mormon. That is a brilliant form of religious indoctrination. Put it in <laughs> but that's what we get. We get the good stuff out of it. You have, what's her name? Trisha Helfer. No, oh, Trisha Helfer's great. That's not a Mormon thought. She was not included anywhere in the Book of Mormon back in the day. Interesting. <laughs> But a fair number of Joseph Smith's rips came from the more mystical parts of the Bible. Urim and Thummim, the magical seer stones, were mentioned in Exodus as adornments on Aaron's breastplate, although we have no idea what their actual magic function was. Covering up those titties. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, Aaron was, honestly, the original definition of the name Aaron means big nipple. (laughs) And so he was just so scared and so ashamed of how big his nipples had grown that he needed these stones to get his power back. I see. And it wasn't just those small details that Joseph Smith borrowed. He took 100 names from the Bible for the Book of Mormon, and direct swipes from the Old and New Testament make up almost 10% of the text. Okay. 
But for the actual narrative of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith mostly took from the stories that were, at the time, threatening to become official parts of American history. See, as we mentioned in the first episode, upstate New York was home to a large amount of Indian burial mounds, and it was thought at the time by a surprising amount of people, both educated and not, that these mounds were the remnants of an extinct race. Well, it's because it's much easier to deal with a race that no longer exists and not have to come to terms with the actual crimes of your civilization that showed up and rolled over the previous civilization. So a really good way to do that is just kind of forget that they were even there. So you are, so you don't, like, that's done. Why are we living in the past? Like, it's that thought process. There's a book called The Fifth Head of Cerberus uh, by uh, the guy that wrote the uh, Sword in the Citadel series, uh, Wolf. Uh, He basically said it's all about that, about how they showed up on a foreign planet and then just got rid of the old species and then said, oh, they've been gone for centuries, and then moved people there. Mm-hmm. And wow, the amount of nerd knowledge that you have is truly, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you're very smart, Henry. <laughs> 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 but that is an interesting, there's a sociological phenomenon as well. Uh, oftentimes people of a different class literally just do not see certain other people. Mm-hmm. So they've done like studies, be like, how many homeless people did you pass on the street? And they'd be like, I didn't see any. But in reality, they passed like four. And mm-hmm. then someone else would see the four. It's very interesting stuff. Yeah. Say hello to everyone. That's what I do. Hello. <laughs> like a giant mentally handicapped man. <laughs> <laughs> and what was more is that they not only erased the history of the people already there, they also constructed a story that made the whole thing those people's fault. Oh, mm. brilliant. It was thought at the time that at least some of the remains in those burial mounds belong to an advanced, extinct white race uh. who had been wiped out by the darker-skinned natives in a great war, and all those people were buried in these large mounds post-battle. Wow. Well, also specifically the place where they were in New York, right, in upstate New York, where they said they had found these giant mounds. And so they had originally postulated that it was this battleground cemetery, mm-hmm. that they thought that these mounds were evidence of these giant battles that happened. And so these were the losers' skeletons that we're looking at, which are these advanced people that had tools and furniture and homes and all this shit. So they said it was an outside force because they weren't reading the actual history and did not know that they were put there on purpose. Right. And this wasn't just folk belief. This wasn't something that farmers were telling each other like on days off. Academics bandied this shit as probably true. And William Henry Harrison, just before he became president for 30 days, of course, before he died, he wrote admiringly about this possible prehistoric America. He thought, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and if you can't trust someone who is too stupid not to be able to live for at least a month when president, then who can you trust? Well, now we know that these mounds were merely aggregated burial sites made up of ancestors of the Cahokia tribe. Hmm. But back then, a person could attach pretty much any story they wanted to these bodies. And Joseph Smith had a lot of practice telling stories about these mounds. See, at first, Joseph made up stories about these hypothetical American forebears to entertain his family. And going off the theme that the Book of Mormon is essentially a fantasy novel, Joseph Smith was a master at world building. Hmm. His own mother said that when her son told these stories, he knew how the people dressed, how they traveled, what animals they domesticated, what their buildings looked like, how their cities were laid out, how they made war, and most importantly, 
what their religious worship was like. Oh, my son Joseph is the smartest historian I've ever met. <laughs> he explained to me they wore hollowed out melons for clothes. <laughs> and they knew that the clothes were dirty when the birds had eaten all the melon rinds <laughs> off of them and they became nude. <laughs> and they used to drink only pee. And a bunch of teddy bears would come out of the forest. and right. Big masculine teddy bears with, with human penises making love to each other and defiance of of morality and defiance of God's law and you know what I I appreciate their freedoms but I wish they wouldn't put it in my face <laughs> well sometime between 1820 and 1827 we don't exactly know when Joseph Smith decided to put this history to paper but before we get to that it's important to talk a little about Joseph Smith's family history, because Henry discovered some new shit since we recorded the last episode. Ooh, cool. I did it. You did it, Henry. I can just see you like a truffle hog in there researching with your big old joint hanging out. (laughs) What Henry discovered is that it is very likely that the Smith family, even outside of Joseph Smith himself, were practicing right-hand path magicians. And the evidence for this lies in the magical artifacts that the Smith family allegedly owned. Okay. What we're going to see over the next two episodes is that Joseph Smith, at some point, was massively educated about the ancient rituals of, like, alchemical magic uh, and uh, hermetic studies, right? So at some point, he knew the stuff and slowly but surely layered it into Mormonism. The Book of Mormon, we're going to find out, is the most pedestrian part of the entire religion. The Book of Mormon does not hold any of these secret rituals that will slowly be built in that we're going to cover more in episode three. But in order for him to even know this, at some point, his family must have been heavily involved. And Hmm. it seems to be that they were involved in magical thought, but it was a practical version of right-hand magic, what we'd call folk magic, that seemed to have been handed down from generation to generation. Yeah, I mean, let's go through some of the magical artifacts the Smith family actually owned. Okay. They had three parchments covered in magical symbols copied directly from three well-known magical texts. The Magus by Francis Barrett, published in 1801. The New and Complete Illustration of Celestial Sciences by Ebenezer Sibley, published in 1784. And The Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott, published in 1584. Oh, that's very nice. There was also a book called The Three Philosophies of the Occult by, I, I want to say, Agrippa, Agrippa, I don't know how to pronounce it, and that is another gigantic compendium. And what we're going to see, too, is that Joseph almost stole the idea of, I can just curate a series of thoughts right. from these books, where you take these books, all of these books are cobbled together of... Ancient people telling the next person and the next person, this is how it's done in ancient texts. And then these people are not making the shit up completely. They're Mm. packaging it, creating connections, but they are taking old stories and making them new, which is what Joseph Smith just inherently understood. That's how somebody works. you got to be making remakes. So he's basically the first Instagrammer who has an account that just steals everybody else's work and then gets... He's Three an, million followers and then an monetizes it. Aggregator. Yeah. Oh, he's an aggregator. He's, he's an aggregator. <laughs> so, but th- so that is really what's interesting about that. Then is if that's how he kind of grew up as a family. That is the basis of Mormonism.
Mormonism. I suppose it's not uh, foreign for humans to build on another person's literature and those no. kinds of things. But that's a really fascinating little seed for Mormonism. It is yeah. also the beginnings of Scientology. Hmm. And if you probably look back and you actually had video cameras or some kind of evidence back in the day, I can fucking guarantee it is also the backbone of Christianity. And then also the idea of just the Kabbalah being in its old mystical center in, in the middle of Judaism— very interesting, highly compelling stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, furthermore, Joseph Smith's brother Hiram inherited a true blue magical tool from Joseph Smith Sr. Hiram Smith was in possession of a ceremonial dagger, which was used in the pursuit of what else but treasure. This artifact, now known as the Mars Dagger, had the seal of Mars inscribed on one side of the blade, and on the other was the zodiac sign for Scorpio and the Hebrew letters for Adonai. And while it may seem like all this is a little hodgepodge, the Hebrew letters in particular when it comes to treasure hunting seem to be tied to the magical writings of the aforementioned Henry Agrippa, which date to around the 16th century. These people knew what the fuck they were doing. Yeah, dude. They were ladled with magic, and we'll, and then we'll see later, later on when Joseph Smith is even dead, we're going to find out what he even had on his own fucking body at the time of his death at the end of Mormonism. All this shit, man, yeah. is Anaki and fucking magic, but he took all the dick and pussy out of it, and he made everybody not drink coffee. <laughs> well, that's a different kind of approach there. Isn't alchemy just thinking that dog shit can become gold? It's not necessarily dog shit but can I'm just become saying, gold. It, but that's a fun <laughs> worldview, because it's, then you're- It's walking, allegorical. It's the trend. It's allegorical. I know, I'm just saying. <laughs> Listen you, to me, sir. If you believe Come closer it, to me, sir. If, it is allegorical. If you believe in it, it makes walking through a cow farm much more exciting I because see. it's not just piles of dung, it's potential gold. You're just but not you can also just sell the fertilizer. <laughs> I heard it was allegorical. <laughs> Well, another thing we found out since the last episode is that crazy old treasure hunter that we dismissed as an old coot in the last episode, the guy named Walters. He was actually a physician named Dr. Lumen Walter, and Dr. Lumen Walter had traveled extensively in Europe studying alchemy and hermetic lore, and a young Joseph Smith spent a lot of time in Walter's tutelage. Interesting. Just cut to him rolling around in pig shit, just being like, it's liquid gold! Liquid, <laughs> liquid gold, gold, baby! Liquid gold! I'm just, that's you know where what I'm too, I will say... Do not count him out for being an old coot, dog meat, because even doctors can become old coots. You just got to get to it. It's a, I, I can't wait. That is what I'm shooting for, because right now I'm just a young coot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll get there, buddy. You're going to get there. Now, we're not saying that these beliefs were real or that even the or that they even produced real results. But the point we're trying to make. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll get into it. But the point we're trying to make is that Joseph Smith, at the very least since he was a teenager, was immersed in magical ritual, which actually makes 19th century America a much more interesting place when you realize that just like fucking farmers were practicing ritual magic. That does make it much more exciting than what I would imagine, which is farmers just waking up at 3.30 in the morning, having to touch every part of the teat on their cows. <laughs> I'll tell you what, that back order don't really go unless you give it a good suck. <laughs> uh, and then just staring at corn and just being like, I hope bugs don't come. <laughs> yeah, we're not saying that every single farmer practiced ritual magic, but some of them were. Cool. And that's cool as shit. 
But back in 1827, Joseph Smith was still a long way from actually putting any of his ritualistic knowledge to use for anything other than treasure hunting, because he just didn't have the belief in himself or the scope to even conceive of these ideas. He didn't know what it was working. He didn't know what he what works he was working. He didn't know that this shit was in the background. Right now, hmm. Joseph Smith is young, dumb, and full of cum, and all he wants <laughs> to do is get as many wives in his saddle as possible, no. and he wants to write. Not yet. He's going to discover <laughs> no, how we awesome also, that'll we be. We have fundamental disagreements on what the purpose of polygamy is, but anyway. I know. No. Well, now I have a more deep, deeper Gnostic understanding, which will bore people with next week yeah. uh, with that shit. But it, it's, you know, but at this time, he's a good looking dude. Who's just trying to save the family farm? I think we all know the purpose of polygamy is to get a reality show. That is the purpose. I heard it was suicide by nagging. (laughs) Come on, guys. Come on. Are we in a VFW? Well, at that time, Joseph Smith was just trying to sell a book so he wouldn't have to be a fucking farmer. But still, Joseph Smith couldn't do this on his own because, as we said, Joseph Smith couldn't write. But before he could get to actually recording the story itself, the story surrounding the Book of Mormon, the hook, still had to be filled out. Hmm. First, he had to convince his family. And considering how into the occult they already were, it wasn't that hard to convince him that he'd eventually found a magical tome of his own that he couldn't show to anyone lest they die a horrible death. Well, this would actually... This- cleared something up for me learning more about his family history yeah is learning about how like why they all jumped in mm-hmm. when he said i found this book it's an absolutely incredible your mind's gonna be blown i have to make it up i didn't say that you didn't hear me say that <laughs> but if i show you any of the source material swish, 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 air quotations your heads will explode and they're like yeah, <laughs> I know books like this. I know head exploding books. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny, but it's because now they're in the story. Like, now they're no longer on the outside of the story. They're no longer just doing these rituals. Like, now the Smith family, who have always been poor, who have always thought that they were better than everyone else, now the Smith family, they were the story. Cool. And, I mean, it wasn't like he wasn't uh, – he was telling the truth somewhat, right? I mean, he was working on the book. It wasn't like Shelley Duvall finding Jack Nicholson writing in the uh, in the main <laughs> entrance of the hotel in The Shining. At least no, he, he was ha- working on it, he right? He was, yeah. Okay. He had a higher output than Jack Torrance. Yes, yes good. <laughs> but to bolster the claim, Joseph was able to show his family the other magical artifacts that he'd found. He showed them the seeing stones, and he showed them the breastplate that he supposedly found with the golden plate. And those things did exist because the breastplate, like breastplates were relatively common in upstate burial mounds. So we probably just robbed that one from a grave. Show him like, look, this is what the angel showed me. These are the seeing stones. The book, I can't show it to you, but I promise it's there. And they figured two out of three ain't bad. Not at all. But some of the some of the family had a closer look at the seer stones than others because some of them said the seer stones were the they were solid, shiny rocks. And some of them said that they were, I think it's hermatite. It's a clear quartz-like rock. But we don't know. But it just seems interesting that everybody's got a different story of what the fuck they look like. Yep. So once Smith convinced his family, he moved on to his wife, who was a much harder sell. See, Emma was starting to suspect that maybe she'd married a con man. And her father never stopped telling her that she had definitely married a con man. What that meant was that the divinity of the Book of Mormon played a role not only in keeping the entire Smith family afloat, but also in assuring Emma that she hadn't made a huge mistake in marrying a handsome treasure hunter from New York. Which is how... Cults get kind of born, right? Where now people feel that they are invested 
personally in believing the central ideas. These are the kind of beginnings of it because this is a, to all you ladies and men out there. If you got a you got a dude or a woman or you got a significant other that's telling you that they they got time, they got to put something together. They don't have time to have a job because they're too busy working on a big secret project. Right. <laughs> you have to either make sure it's a book by going through the computer and making sure they're not stockpiling guns. Or just a bunch of different butt plugs, and they're just trying to make the world's biggest game, hey, which is man. fine. You can, get, but get sponsorship. Yeah, you can monetize that. Yeah. Well, since Emma placed no stock in the occult, Joseph Smith had to dazzle her with his talent as a storyteller. Okay. So Emma was tasked with being the first transcriber for the Book of Mormon. And as she sat ready and waiting with a pen and paper, Joseph Smith was across the room staring into his seeing stones. And when inspiration finally struck, Smith began the tale that would become the Book of Mormon. Live from your grave. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text and that helps you save time i know i'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse picks now part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents accounts now so what i've done to do is like so while i'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse picks over various country borders. I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh. Like creator, Kate. This Glade Orchid Neroli candle is so fresh. It's like fresh as watching a sunrise in Santorini. Yeah, I'm going to need more of those. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. Live from your grave. Now, as we said, the Book of Mormon was a record of the history of the American Indian. And like the Bible, it was written by prophets and divided into different books. And we don't want to get too deep into the theology, but what the book posits is that while nine of the lost ten tribes of Israel from the Old Testament were indeed still lost, one of those tribes were the first people to populate what eventually came to be known as the United States of America. Ooh! And these guys were so Jewish, they lived in tents. <laughs> they were so Jewish, they could speak to bison. <laughs> really? I didn't realize that was a stereotype of the American Jew. See, it was the prophet Nephi who had left Jerusalem 600 years before the birth of Christ. And with Nephi was his father, Lehi, and a few others <laughs> who all... <laughs> That's cute. I like it when people have family names that they all rhyme. Like, this is Kyle, this is Lyle, this is Miles. <laughs> this is Ben, this is Clan, this is Schman, and this is 
Ribbon. Rabbinstown. Rabbinstown. <laughs> We're out of ideas, but we can't stop having babies. Well, Nephi, Lehi, and a few others all left Jerusalem because the city was due for destruction. And like Joseph Smith, Nephi had two older brothers who were named Laman and Lemuel. And like Joseph Smith, Nephi had three younger brothers, Sam, Jacob, and Joseph. But in the book, Joseph cast the two older brothers as evil. And because they were evil, God cursed them and all of their descendants with red skin. Isn't that great? That they, that, <laughs> so God was super racist, yeah. and he saw the punishment was making them look Native American. Wow. Oh, that is unbelievable. So there's a lot of bigotry in here. Yes. And obviously no. we can go into that no later way. on. No. It's going to get a lot worse no, before I know. it gets better. I, rem- I know what happened in 1973 <laughs> when the liberal Mormons said black people were actually people for the first time. I know. And thus the Lamanites, a.k.a. the Native Americans, were born. And since Nephi had stayed in the good graces of God, he retained his white skin because it's a well-known fact that everyone from Jerusalem in 600 BC was white. Oh yeah, buddy. That's where white people were born because there's nothing there's no place where I see white people feel more natural, especially me. In the desert, <laughs> sun beaten down, yeah, absolutely course. my pale white skin. I don't need protection. I had a palm frond <laughs> which I'd carry from place to place like there's <laughs> So yes, of course I'm from Africa. Yeah, naturally. <laughs> so that meant that the white men, the Nephites, were the good guys and the Native Americans, the Lamanites, were the bad guys. Okay. See, the Lamanites were described as, quote, wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people full of idolatry and filthiness, feeding upon beasts of prey, dwelling in tents, with a short skirt girded about their loins. You can see their dingles and their dangles. <laughs> Come on. They're just trying to live, have a, eat some meat, you yeah. know, have some good uh, barbecue and beef jerky. Well, by contrast, the Nephites were, quote, a fair and delightsome people. Ugh. Known for their love of culture, they were farmers and architects, they were good, civilized folk who only wanted to bask in the glory of God. Sucks. I'm going to grab every one of them by their ankles and just shake them like they're a sheet that needs to dry. I would love that. I hate those kinds of people. And and these two tribes warred with each other for a thousand years, and after each battle, the dead were piled in great mounds, and it was the dead Nephites and Lamanites who dotted the landscape of western New York. Okay, first of all, they wouldn't have warred for hundreds of years. That war would have been over in a second as soon as the whites missed their tea lunch. And then they're like, no, better stop, better stop fighting, Kissel. we missed our tea. People that love architecture are great fighters. Is that right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it must be said that Emma was absolutely flabbergasted when Joseph seemingly just stream of conscious this whole fucking story. Like, as far as, from her perspective, he's just sitting there staring at a table and he's just spouting this shit off. Dude, he's Robin Williamsing his way throughout this whole thing without the horrible ending. I guess he didn't want to see what coming real hard was like. But when he, when Joseph Smith was into shit, into flow, he's just been like, and you got mounds over here and mounds over there. Everywhere you look, there's mounds everywhere. And she's just like, whoa. Holy shit, he's dropping crazy fucking rhymes. That's nuts. Well, that's because Emma honestly did not think her husband was capable of creating such a story on his own. But Emma was just the first of many people to underestimate Joseph Smith's raw intelligence. Hmm. 
See, a big part of Mormon belief is that Joseph Smith was just a simple farm boy who just wasn't all that smart. Well, that was the idea, right? It's that, but that was in doctrine. It was that, that that was how he knew. That's how you knew the revelations were real. Yeah, because of he was too simple. He was because you technically, if you met Joseph Smith the way they portrayed him, he'd be like. I don't know what happened. And why the naked man came to me in the night and he gave me so many fancy dishes, so many fancy dishes saying funny, funny stories. And like, but then you meet the real Joseph Smith and he's like, hey, how you doing? And he's got like a Bluetooth thing in there. Like, how, what does that do? And he's like, it's a whole thing. It's like a thing I got from an angel. What's going on? It's absolutely a brilliant way to do it, though. Coming through the back door because then people are like, oh, he's just one of me. Or maybe even make him feel like they're more intelligent than you. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, they're voting for you as president of these United States of America. <laughs> but as Fawn Brody points out in No Man Knows My History, this actually does a great disservice to Joseph Smith. Because if you look at some of the other things being published at the same time as the Book of Mormon, you see that Joseph Smith was actually very well read. Hmm. See, in 1823, about five years before the Book of Mormon was published, a pastor named Ethan Smith wrote a book called View of the Hebrews, or The Ten Tribes of Israel in America. Now, although the book was badly sourced and its conclusions were fantastically wrong, Ethan Smith was drawing upon what sources were available at the time to explain where the Native Americans actually came from. And it was Ethan Smith who first floated the idea that the natives had come from Israel with civilization in tow, but over time had devolved into a way of living that us whites had deemed inferior. But their idea is that they left from boats from Israel. Yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. (laughs) It's a very difficult way to get to America. Where the idea that they just weren't Asian people that came over the Bering Strait I just, it's difficult. It, There's also some of these stories where they're like, they grew out of cabbage patches. Where you're like, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that that is good either, but whatever gets them here, I don't know, guys. Interesting. So they just refused the idea that they were indigenous, that they actually owned the land. Yes. This is all just them doing mental uh, Gym- acrobats, gymnastics, yeah. gymnastics to not feel like total horrible pieces of shit. Exactly. And Joseph Smith even used this book to support his own hypothesis years later. But cleverly, Joseph Smith used a reprint of the material that was published after the Book of Mormon, which made it look like the Book of Mormon had actually inspired this book rather than the other way around. Smart. Nice. And it wasn't just the overall hypothesis that Joseph Smith swiped. The opening was the same. The prophets were the same. Both quoted a lot from the book of Isaiah and both said that the job of white Americans was to bring the Indian into the Christian flock. But this was just the base for Joseph Smith. This was the jumping off point. What gave the Book of Mormon the actual oomph was the biblical connections. Mm. See, there's a line in the Bible from Jesus that says, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. That's also what we do here at Last Podcast Network, trying to get people to subscribe to our various shows. <laughs> Absolutely. So Jesus, he's just yelling at a bunch of sheep, huh? You know, yeah. You're probably going to want to get, get some humans over in here. Get over here, sheep. And it was Joseph. Get over here. That's what it would have sounded like. <laughs> that, that's what Jesus sounds get like? Get over here. <laughs> like scorpion. Oh, cool. And it was Joseph Smith's contention that those other sheep were the Lamanites and the Nephites of America. 
And from what Joseph Smith claimed, Jesus did come to America around the time that he was executed on Golgotha. Ah. Well, the story goes that when Jesus came to America, the Nephites and the Lamanites had been locked in a vicious battle. But after Jesus came, both tribes accepted the gospel and made peace, at least until Satan undid the whole thing a few generations later. Mm. Got to. But all this story, it wasn't just Emma Smith who was doing the transcribing. Quite a bit of it was done by a man named Martin Harris, whose family sometimes employed Joseph Smith's family for day labor. See, Martin Harris, although he was a perfectly honest and very nice young man by all accounts, was extremely gullible and swallowed Joseph Smith's story about the golden plates and Moroni from the very beginning. Uh, 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 Joey, do, do you think that maybe I can get a look at some of these fancy, fancy plates of yours? Uh, yeah, if you want your head to explode. Oh, joke. One day, maybe I can wear sunglasses or something to protect my, my brain from the, from the gold plates. Yeah, sure thing, Marty. <laughs> Well, the reason why Martin Harris fell for this so easily was because Martin Harris had what you might call a wandering conviction. Before hitching his star to Smith, Harris had been a restorationist, a universalist, and a Quaker. But Joseph Smith's story held a special allure. Like, I mean, Martin Harris was a guy that was searching for something new. What were those? What, reservationists? Restorationists. Restorationists? I don't know. You don't, you don't, yeah, I don't, okay. I don't I know. No like, I've never heard that. Yeah, well, I mean, the Quakers are still around. Of but, course, but that, of course. But this was also a time in America where there were so many different uh, ways of looking at Christianity. Because like we said in the first episode, right. like this is the first time where in, where in a country you could do whatever you wanted with religion. And America right. was full of dreamers. We didn't just have a gold rush for monetary gain we also had a spiritual rush mm. people were trying to find the truth yes the great spiritual reformation and the restorationists their job with the, i mean i think that it comes down to what mormonism was also said to do which was restore the true christian church mm. like that's what all this is about it's whoever is the glass guy who said now we've revamped it we made Samuel L. Jackson shaft, and that should be enough. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's the whole, like, uh, primitive church theory, like, where we got to bring the church back to mm. its most— pre- because the Book of Mormon was also extremely anti-Catholic, like, violently anti-Catholic in a time when people were burning down nunneries okay. in America. But for Martin Harris, Joseph Smith's story held a special allure, because with Joseph Smith, Martin Harris was getting on, getting in on the ground floor of something brand new, and that just made it that much more exciting. Yeah, man. See, for Martin, what was most impressive about the Book of Mormon was that it seemed to solve the problem of just where the fuck the Native Americans came from, because apparently that was a big question in the minds of a lot of white people at the time. They were obsessed with this question, like, where do they come I, from? They should be. Because they keep running to places where they are told, ah, the West, the final frontier. We'll go and you'll see all the, these uh, unadulterated lands, free for speculation, free for habitation. And you go, and there's like a bunch of families living on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> you guys are like here, though. Wow, that's <laughs> what amazing. The fuck? Weird. Wow. Well, speaking of getting in on the ground floor, I got I to gotta run. My package of Herbalife is here. <laughs> And I think I'm going to do it. Do you guys like Herbalife? Because I'm told oh. if I get both of you guys to sign up, I'm making so much money. You know what's on my bucket list is shitting myself to death. So, yes, please, sending me, send me some. Great, great. 
But as impressive as Martin Harris thought the story was, he still wanted to see the plates for himself. Now, Smith refused, naturally, but he did give Harris a copy of what he said was some of the engraved characters from the plates. So Harris could take these engraved characters to a learned man to translate. So it's as good as the plates. Right. You're going to want to keep this IOU because this is really, really very expensive. But they, he just wrote a bunch of symbols down. But we're going to find out. I mean, he did a little bit of work a little to, for bit. this con. A okay. little bit. Now, concerning these characters, like you'd think that, you know, if he's going to be writing this shit, you know, if, the, if it's going to be coming from God, if it's going to be coming from hang, angels, it's going to be in Hebrew. But the thing is, is it speak, even though speaking Hebrew in America was rare at the time, there were still people who could speak Hebrew in America, especially so close to New York City. Mm-hmm. What nobody knew anything about just yet, though, in America was Egyptian hieroglyphics. <gasps> See, before the Rosetta Stone was finally deciphered in 1822, people assumed that the written language of the ancient Egyptians was forever lost. And Joseph Smith assumed... That it was going to be forever lost. That no one was uh, ever going to be able to figure no, out. What all no, no one will ever know, were. man. Yeah, that's no like, they can't know, dude. That's like the Golden State Killer. Just be like, <laughs> they'll never come up with the technology to catch me. I think I'm going to be just fine forever. <laughs> and the thing is that even after the stone was deciphered, because the stone, the Rosetta Stone, uh, was deciphered around the time that Mormonism uh, was created. But those findings weren't published until 1837, years after Mormonism was already established. Hmm. So Joseph Smith figured he'd be safe if he just copied a bunch of hieroglyphs along with other, along with a lot of other impressive-looking symbols and call it Reformed Egyptian. <laughs> That's a great way of just saying total horseshit. <laughs> I love the idea of being Reformed Egyptian, yeah. where it's like you take your Horus hat off, though. Like, you don't always <laughs> go to the Temple of Solomon. It's like you celebrate some of the various Ramses celebrations, but some that you don't. Well, there were some people that thought that the ancient Egyptians and the people of the Americas uh, had made contact with each other. Because, you know, you had all the pyramids down in South America. Like, those were being discovered at this time. So it wasn't a ridiculous notion. It was one of those because Joseph Smith was very good at taking all these new uh, scientific discoveries that were wrong at the time. Mm -hmm. But he was very good at taking them to give his own story a little bit of clout. Okay, but what Martin Harris did with this sheet that had all of these reformed Egyptian characters on it, Martin Harris took it down to Columbia University. And at Columbia, a professor told Martin Harris that he pretty much just brought him a bunch of bullshit. But, admittedly, it was intriguing bullshit. Yeah, because I want to meet the fucking asshole that sent you with this. Like, who sent this to me? So the professor asked if he could see the original plates. Now, of course, Martin had to admit that even he had not seen the plates because to do so was forbidden. I hope you like him in the head because if you were to even try to look at these plates from what I'm told, even sunglasses won't keep your brain from exploding. (laughs) He's like... Oh, yeah? <laughs> really? <laughs> and when Martin Harris told the professor that he couldn't see the book, the professor said, quote, I cannot read a sealed book. So Martin went back to Palmyra crestfallen. But what Joseph Smith did next truly shows how intelligent he actually was. 
According to Harris, when he told Joseph Smith the line about the sealed book, Smith immediately went over to his Bible, opened it to the book of Isaiah, and showed Harris this verse. Hey, Harris, you want to shit your pants? <laughs> and the vision of all has become unto you as to the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. Boom goes the dynamite. <laughs> Another fucking three. I just drained it from the center court. So instead wow. of destroying his faith as it should have, this episode actually bound Harris closer because Martin Harris had unwittingly fulfilled a biblical prophecy. Now Martin They have Harris- a saying about everything. It's wow. the fucking Bible. Of course, it's the golden corral of all religions. They got everything you need. See, now Harris is a part of the story. Now he's in it. He is in the fucking Bible. Wow. And with that, Harris pledged to finance the publication and distribution of the Book of Mormon. God, we gotta start a goddamn religion, man. We need that free-ass money. But while Martin Harris was getting carried away with his new buddy, Martin Harris's wife was none too keen on literally betting the farm on Nephites and Lamanites and angels with goofy names. Oh, she didn't Holy like that shit. idea, huh? Huh. I wonder why. It is straight up Tim Allen and Patricia Heaton. This is her. This is Patricia Heaton. I can see the look on her face being like... You did what with our fucking money? And he'd be like, you don't understand. This is just, I'm in the Bible now. I'm a big shot. I'm a big guy. And she she became especially concerned when Martin told her that he was leaving the farm to be closer to Joseph Smith because Martin Harris had volunteered to take over scribe duties from Emma because Emma was now pregnant. So when Martin went, his wife Lucy went with him because she wanted to see this shit for herself. And for two weeks, Lucy Smith searched high and low for these fucking golden plates, not giving a shit about the warning Joseph had given that seeing the plates resulted in your fucking head exploding. Show me the plates. <laughs> I, I honestly can see it's, it's just that line of walking into a house being like, hi, hi, how you doing? You're my, you're my husband's new boss. Show me the plates. <laughs> you gotta I'll the- deal with my head exploding. I'll grow a new head. I read a thing last week that says I can grow a new head if I, if I step on a, a daffodil with my left foot three times. I don't know, bro. It'll Show work. me the fucking plates. A little helmet on, maybe. Keep it all contained, yeah. <laughs> But after that fortnight was over and done with, Lucy Harris finally said to hell with it. She said, do whatever you want. I'm going back home. Hey, technically he won. That's how you (laughs) win a fight in a relationship. Always push. We're watching it happen with, I don't want to say, fucking big boys fucking tax uh, information. You just keep saying like, nope, 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 nope. Eventually people stop asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. And so Martin Harris stayed in Palmyra to continue the writing of the Book of Mormon. And as it went along, Joseph switched up his style of dictation. With Harris, Smith divided the room with a blanket, and Martin Harris was not permitted to look at Joseph while di- while Joseph was dictating through the seeing stones. And of course, by by switching it up, he did the Jim Carrey from Ace Ventura, where he bent over, spread his butt cheeks, <laughs> and spoke out of his asshole. Do you have any banaka? Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. Uh, like, so this is how the dictation goes. <laughs> this is incredible. Very bizarre. And so, after two months, 
they had the first 116 pages of the Book of Mormon, including Woo! what Emma had already transcribed. Although there was not a single comma, capital letter, or period in the entire manuscript because neither Emma nor Martin had punctuation in their skill set, mm. which is why so many sentences in the Book of Mormon begin with the word and. I, I don't know what wins the competition of make you fall asleep while driving <laughs> than listening to either LRH's Technique 88 on CD player, which I was doing for a while, or listening to the audible version of the Book of Mormon. Oof. Yeah, because when the, when the uh, typesetters were given the manuscript, it was just a wall of text. I no mean, punctuation, no no line breaks, no nothing. So they just kind of had to add in punctuation where they that saw can really, fit. That can change a lot, though. Yeah, it can. Yes. Absolutely. I do think it's one of those things where you want to read it after you take three bumps of real good Coke. <laughs> and then you're like, I totally get it. I'm reading just as fast as they're writing it. I think I'm doing just fine. But Mara Harris thought, that these 116 pages constituted proof that Joseph had been telling the truth all along because Martin Harris had bought the whole fallacy that Joseph Smith was just too simple to come up with this story on his own. Mm. So Martin Harris begged Smith to permit the passage of the pages back to his wife, who would now surely be convinced of Smith's divine inspiration. Oh, yeah, that's oh, going to yeah, work Oh, yeah, definitely. Out. She's not, <laughs> yeah, definitely. She, she hasn't been just stewing for three months, just, like, ready to kick the shit out of him. <laughs> you have fun blowing that guy? You yeah. have fun doing whatever the fuck it is you're doing over there? You guys uh, enjoying each other or doing whatever the fuck it is, eating lunch? I don't know. I don't give a shit. What's this? There's a book? It's not even an entire book? Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally a section of it? It's technically just one long sentence. This is all our money is paid for? Uh, it took a lot of convincing, but Smith finally relented, and he let Martin Harris take the pages. But then a week went by, and another week, and another, and there was no word from Martin Harris. And while Smith was waiting... Emma went into labor, and they had a fucking tragedy. The baby died in childbirth, and oh. Emma almost died as well. And finally, Emma told Joseph, just go see Martin Harris and find out what the fuck happened to the goddamn book. Where's the book? Where's the book? Where's the book, Smith? Where's the fucking book? Give the man the book. <laughs> wow. that I mean, I'm actually surprised he would give a random man, not a random man, but why would you give the book away? I would never have done that. I Think? This is an early mistake. Yeah, it's an early mistake, but I th it's also it's hubris because I think Joseph Smith was starting to. Th I think he was starting to believe that, like, <laughs> when Lucy sees these pages, when she sees how fucking awesome this story is, she's gonna turn right around, and we're gonna nip this whole problem in the bud, and we're all gonna be buddies. We're all gonna go out and fucking dinner dates together. Maybe if you had That's one comma, at. she would have trusted it more. <laughs> That's not my fault. The words are rushed. <laughs> they are true inspiration. <laughs> and I trust Lucy's gonna love it. <laughs> but when Joseph Smith showed up at Martin Harris's house, he discovered the terrible truth. Uh-oh. See, predictably, the pages did not impress Lucy Harris the way that Martin had hoped they would. In fact, Lucy decided that if nobody was allowed to see the plates, then there was only one way to prove that the translations were real. So to test Joseph, Lucy hid the manuscript and told her husband that if Joseph were really translating these plates word for word, then he'd have no trouble whatsoever in just 
doing it again. Honestly, man. Do it again, bro. <laughs> Martin is dating Sharon Osborne, married to Sharon Osborne, and she is just in charge of the family business. She is just and, fucking on lockdown. Yeah. The only smart person in this whole scenario besides Joseph Smith. And she's just like, just do it again, right? <laughs> yeah, just do it again. Yeah, and wow. Lucy Smith said, if he can do it again, then you can convince me. He's like, I, she's like, I can't see the plates. Fine, this is how he he can convince me. All and right. if he can do this, then yeah, sure, everything will be fucking great, and we'll all be friends. Now this put Joseph Smith in a bit of a pickle. No way, because <laughs> he fits him. He'd be like, I give him like, so you did what? <laughs> oh, you hid the manuscript, huh? So I could just do it again, huh? <laughs> that makes perfect. Sense, Lucy. <laughs> See, if he was off even a little, then he'd lose everything. Oh my god! He'd lose Martin Harris's money. He'd lose his wife's faith, and most likely he would lose his father's farm because the father, his father's farm, was nearing foreclosure. Like the stakes were, could not have been higher for it's, Joseph Smith. I, I tell you what, Joe, I'm I'm believing you, and I know you can go out there and hit all. Home run to save his whole team. You know the good kids camp is going to get the farm. It's your big old bat. I know you got to do it for us, Joe. All right, let's add the movie Bas- Basketball and uh, Heavyweights. The film Heavyweights and Basketball. Great. What was more, Emma Smith like was still hovering near the land of the dead since the stillbirth, and the realization oh. that her husband was a complete and total fraud might well have actually killed her. But I will say, if he can pull this off... If he can pull this off... I might be converting, guys. (laughs) So, Joseph Smith did what else but sidestepping bullshit? Ah. He said that as it turned out, good news, guys, God had already planned for just such an eventuality. Nice! (laughs) And God directed Smith to a second set of plates called the Plates of Nephi that covered... Pretty much the same period of time as the original Golden Plates. Because that's what God always does. God always creates a second copy that's slightly different. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Always. And as far as why Smith couldn't just translate from the originals, because it's not like Lucy Harris stole the Golden Plates. It was because Satan, through Lucy Harris, had sullied the message. He took a dump on the plates. (laughs) (laughs) And therefore, the original Golden Plates should never be translated or read ever again, because now they had the taint of Satan. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See me tell me, Satan put his gooch on me, and I'm the one who fucked this up. I'm the one, Lucy. I'm the problem. I did this. How did this get flipped to me? No one listens to a woman. All right, Joseph Smith, sidestepping indeed. But the funny thing about Lucy Harris's ruse was that through this small act of chicanery, she may have inadvertently redirected the course of history. See, the first draft of the Book of Mormon was more of a narrative story. It was just something to sell. But when Joseph gave it a second go, he had to give it a different flair because he was supposedly translating from different plates. So instead of just telling a story, Joseph Smith made it a religious history the butterfly effect so uh she inadvertently (laughs) created mormonism if she had just left well enough alone the book of mormon may have just been a curious if not completely forgotten piece of frontier literature but as it was she helped create a religion that now has a membership of 16 
million people. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. But they all don't go to heaven. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Isn't they there, like, they a got lo- a lot of, there's a lot of levels. There's a lot of layers yeah, there. Yeah, like yeah. like Herbalife, guys. <laughs> and that's why, again, I want to sell you on Herbalife. Henry, you mentioned wanting to shit yourself to death. This product yes. can do that. Marcus, do you want to vomit yourself to death? Of course. This product can do that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and from that day forward, like... Martin Harris did not come through this entire thing unscathed. He pretty much became Joseph Smith's whipping boy because, Mm. admittedly, Martin Harris had fucked up pretty bad. Yeah. And eventually, Harris was replaced in the translator role by a young school teacher named Oliver Cowdery. He just recasted it? You just, oh yeah. Let's just get another guy. Sorry, Martin. You're out. Everybody's throwaway when it comes to the vision. He understood his strengths. Like, this is not any different than being a showrunner. Honestly, not, he has no. now become a showrunner of a, of a television show that will become Mormonism. So, if they're not serving the narrative, bye-bye. Wow. As soon as their contract out, they're done. Like yeah. So, he is now moving to new blood, new energy. It's like when Roseanne got a whole new older daughter... And it's like, we're just supposed to roll around with it. Like, oh, we don't notice. It's a different person. What about the Fresh Prince's new mom? I mean, come on. Oh, my God. Whatever happened to her? (laughs) Wow. Suicide by cop. No, that's sad. That's sad. And with Oliver, Joseph switched up the process yet again. So the way he jumped into a form of scrying that was him with a hat on his knees and the seer stones at the bottom of the hat. And he'd sit with his face in the hat in his lap, right? And so he's sitting there. It's going like, the prophecy is coming. Don't worry, Oliver. It's coming. Oh, oh Oliver. Oh. Oliver, the prophecy is really cooking now. <laughs> Wait a second. Joseph, is there, is there a hole cut in the bottom of that hat? <laughs> no. <laughs> really? Prophecy is so close. Is that so what close. is that right, Henry? <laughs> Joseph Smith sucked his own cock when coming up with Mormonism, and that's how he he received all the the proper words. He had a rib removed so he could suck his own dick. I Him don't think Manson. that's the Marilyn Manson lore. I don't think that's true. Well, what Joseph Smith says is that he buries his face in the hat hole, and in the darkness, the words would appear before him, illuminated. In perfect English. I would love to see his face in that hat, though, just being like, I better fucking come up with something. God damn it. Okay, <laughs> okay well, buddy. So, okay. Well, Let's figure this shit out. They said that Fuck. he actually did have writer's block every once in a while, and he, but he would say that he was not spiritually pure. And I, I totally get it, man. Like, sometimes you gotta go get your mind off shit. He'd go out to a, a, a river nearby and throw rocks into the river until his mind restarted. I do the same thing. I, I play bass when my writer's block comes. Yeah. Yeah, we all. Yeah, he throws rocks at Carol he goes outside, he runs around the block as fast as possible, he tries to deliver postman's mail for them. I've seen Marcus's process, it's very interesting. So by the time the Book of Mormon was finally finished in 1829, the manuscript had reached 275,000 words. Ooh. And Mormons claimed that the Book of Mormon was finished in 75 days, which meant that Smith dictated about 3,700 words per day. And to put Ooh. that into perspective, our book, that runs about 90,000 words. It's, but, it's about 400 pages. And that book's still in the copy editing process, and we started writing it almost three years ago. All right, but to be fair, it really is the person transcribing it. 
No, like Joseph if, Smith is the one that's coming up with the no, story. I know, and they're, they're, I know, and but, but yeah, this is how we writer, wrote our book. But the writer was the one doing the hard work because if we no, had, he's just talking. Yeah, no, that's the coming up with. You think? Okay, okay. So right? you think? I'd like to see how frustrated Marcus is because you're saying that the person who worked the hardest on our book was Microsoft Word. Yeah, that's, that's like what you're that's saying. What you're no, saying. This, no, you're Microsoft saying Word is part. not a person. I'm you're, saying it's the person with a quill having to follow every single insane person that this man is talking. So you're saying that for me, the wow. hardest part about writing the bulk of this book was that my hands got sore every once in a while. Marcus, if you had to write this book with a quill, yes, <laughs> I would say that. I mean, wow. yes. I will admit, yes, I did have to sometimes take. Tylenol when I was having to write like 20, 30 pages in a week, but... I'm just saying, the person who transcribed this and actually wrote everything, that must have been extremely difficult. He's just got a story tell uh, in his own mind. That you do not win this argument. You do not win this you argument. You don't win it, I even though you said the last sentence. I will you say, don't no, win. I think the audience is going to side with me on this. I don't think the audience is going to side with you that just writing down is harder than coming up with the How framework you for an it? entire religion. How you got to keep up pace. You got you got carpal tunnel. You got to roll with it. This guy is on fire. You got to go. Strange <laughs> man you are. <laughs> it's very difficult. But still, before we get and to... And also, you were writing factual stuff about history. Making stuff up is not that hard. It's very it's difficult. So, you're insane. It's so much all more we difficult. Do, we, all writing, we do is make things no, up. Writing fiction is you, so I much know, more difficult than what I do. Thank you. You just proved my point. Writing I fiction just said, is more difficult. The writing. Wow. Yes. God, God, I just... You're going to kill Marcus. I'm not going to kill Marcus. Gonna, I just, we just started this series. We just started it. All right. But before you get too impressed with Joseph's word output, know that the phrase, and it came to pass, appeared somewhere in the neighborhood of two thousand times that's great that's like when you're a kid and you have to write like 50 words you'd be like i really 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 like pencils and then your teacher has to yell at you and as i said twenty-seven thousand words in the book of mormon were lifted directly from the bible and also he had a running start he'd already written one version in 116 pages of it so he actually had some rough draft work already done Mm -hmm. so then he can probably spit stuff out a little bit faster in the beginning and then get to uncharted land and then figure out where the hell he is so emma was inadvertently also his editor Somewhat. Well, this by this point it was uh, Cowdery that was doing this shit. No, he had no editor in any way whatsoever. No, it was just straight up stream of conscious. Yeah, he's full on Rush Limbaugh right now. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, admittedly, he fucked up a time or two. Among his more egregious errors were the misplacement of John the Baptist and his claim that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Not Bethlehem. Ah. Yeah, fu- that's a pretty big detail to fuck up. Doozy, yeah. yeah. And he fucked up having the natives bring horses, cows, and sheep in 400 BC when it was common knowledge, even at that time, that those animals didn't exist in America before the arrival of Europeans. Hmm. And he had them eating wheat and barley, which didn't exist before the Europeans, instead of potatoes uh, and corn. And they were drinking Bud Light. How the <laughs> hell did he even know about that? And they recorded their favorite programs on a VCR? <laughs> This is incredible. (laughs) But Smith had an ingeniously self-depreciating failsafe against these criticisms built in to the Book of Mormon. He had Moroni proclaim this. And if our plates had been sufficiently large, we should have written in Hebrew. But the Hebrew hath been altered by us also. And if we could have written in Hebrew, you would have had non-imperfection in our record. Now, if there be fault... It would be the mistake of man. 
Not me. Because I tell you what, you get the best pork roll in Newark, you got to take the BQE, you got to hit the New Jersey Turnpike, you get off of Hoboken, you got to remember, you take the dirt exit, and sometimes, ah, you know, sometimes they don't heat it up, but you got to yell at that fucker. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and to really drive it home, Joseph repeated that last sentence again later on in the book. If there be fault, it be the mistake of men. And then when he said it the second time, he added that if anyone called him on shit, that person would be edging dangerously close to hellfire. That's a hell of a fucking thing to like just hammer someone home with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if there's any mistake, it's the guy's fault. Don't blame don't oh, blame yeah. God. Don't blame the the God, don't blame the words of God, blame the hands of men. Oh, and so whose hands are, are so wonderful now, Ben? See? The person with the quill. Very strange. The pen is mightier than the sword, my friend. It's not. You're just saying things. Now you're just saying things. Live from your grave. Live from your grave. But the real reason why Joseph wrote the book so goddamn fast was because while Joseph was farting around with blankets and hats with his buddies, his parents had lost the farm. Aww. And they've moved in with Joseph's brother. And Joseph was about to have to share some of that burden. And honestly, I think this is one of the big motivators in the life of Joseph Smith and in the development of Mormonism. See, Joseph knew that if this didn't work, he had no choice but to go back to farming. He couldn't help the idea of, like, I'm a special guy. Yeah. Right. I'm a special guy. I can't go back to some regular job. Mm-hmm. I need to be a leader. I'm too smart. I'm going to say it's, it's another page at LRH's playbook where it's just been like his body's too beautiful. His mind really? is too swift. His voice is too sweet. There's no way he can just have some office job. LRH has got to fly. LRH has the body of everyone with an office job. Other than the people listening to this, you're all absolutely beautiful and stunning. But that is also what you have to do as an entertainer. You can't have a backup plan. When your back's against the wall, you have to move forward. Otherwise, you're going to be totally screwed. I had a backup plan. What was your backup plan? Uh, I had a few, actually. What? We yeah, can... mine was credit card fraud. <laughs> yeah, that, Honestly, that's that the that only one. way I made it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mortuary assistant, like morti- like going to mortuary school, uh, or a history professor. You're, you're talking to a true ghoul. He could live like a ghoul if he <laughs> needed okay. to. No, okay, that's, that's cool, man. Well, once Mormonism started to take off, Joseph Smith still knew in the back of his mind that if he failed, there was always a farm waiting. And most likely, Joseph Smith wasn't going to own that farm. Joseph Smith was just going to be working that farm. And Joseph Smith would do fucking anything to keep from going back to the fields, which Mm -hmm. is a motivation that I understand completely. It's like the end of Red Dead Redemption. Towards the end, you have to start farming all over again, and it's very hard. Yeah. You have to pick up <laughs> shit. You have to nail stuff in. There's literally, for those that haven't played yet, there's about three hours of the game where you just have to do fake manual labor. And that, I and hate it. I hate it so aggravating. much. That's why I think Red Dead is a highly overrated game. Uh, I love it. <laughs> wow. Very controversial. Towards the, the end, most controversial. Very, controversial. controversial. very good. Yes, I, I understand completely. But the other thing that Joseph Smith had to do to keep this narrative moving forward, always moving forward. He had to borrow from a lot of different sources. And in addition to the histories and the Bible, Joseph Smith ripped part of his story straight from the headlines of the day. Not too far away from Palmyra, an author named Morgan had gone missing, allegedly because he was writing an expose on the evils of the Freemasons. Cool. 
and not too long after, a body washed up that was thought to be Morgan, but was really a man named Monroe. And although we don't know for sure, Fawn Brody speculated that it was an amalgamation of the names Morgan and Monroe that gave us the word Mormon. Because otherwise, the etymology of the word Mormon is a total fucking mystery. Well, what we also remember the Book of Mormon is that technically the concept is that Mormon is the one writing the book. He was just a guy that was a son of one of the various members of the I forget it was, I think it was the Good Race yeah, it was Lehi, that he yeah. was representing. Right. So Mormon was Lehi. a name that was used as a character, and then we'll find out later on. Joseph Smith hated the term Mormons. He didn't like it. He thought it was he thought it was belittling to his people because that was just a character in the story, which is the liked wow. Christ the, the, the idea. I forget what the actual term that he liked but it was you had to be a latter-day saint yes latter-day saints wow. that's what they actually like to be things? called latter-day saints not necessarily like mormons and in fact like mormon wow. at one point in america like mormon was a pejorative it was an insult to call someone a mormon it's, it's such a human uh way to come up with a name it's mm-hmm. very interesting but it wasn't just the name that Smith may have taken from this Freemason story. And what's amazing here is that conspiracy theories about Freemasons overthrowing and controlling the government were actually much more intense in 1830 than they are today. But there was way more practicing Freemasons, like actual powerful Freemasons at the time. And our entire government in 1776 was uh, largely informed by the Freemasons. Mm. Freemasons were dubbed. That whole society was deeply uh, embedded mm. in the creation of our country. So you could see why they were actively concerned because they were really around and there were Freemasons in power. Yeah. And, you know, and the idea that there's like a big evil organization uh, that controls our government, like it's been around forever and it still survives to this day it's just now the masonic lodge has become the deep state and the freemasons have been replaced with the fbi but the point is that all this bullshit is nothing new right yeah the evil shadow government has always been there yeah it's always been a part of our society but it's it's interesting to see how again where conspiracy theorists where you are born is the seeds that were real the little right. things mm-hmm. that were real that an extrap- extrapolate into something huge yeah. and as he rebranded certain religious tenets that's all we do here we just rebrand things with different names as marcus mentioned exactly and joseph smith used these stories to great effect he introduced a secret society into the book of mormon called the gadiantons <laughs> oh that's fun they make like uh, they they walk with uh, coconuts and they pretend they're horses <laughs> that's your, that's where you're getting the <laughs> <laughs> And the aim of the Gadiantans was to overthrow the democratically elected Nephite government. Mm. Now, just see if these claims made about the Gadiantans in the Book of Mormon sound familiar. Thus they might murder and plunder and steal and commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness, contrary to the laws of their country and also to the laws of their god. And the Gadiantans had rituals and oaths that were almost direct rips from masonry. And it was said that the Gadiantans murdered government officials and were eventually responsible for a war of extermination fought near a hill that was disgustingly called Camorra. Oh yeah, baby. Camorra, all right. But despite all this seeming intrigue, the Book of Mormon is not, objectively, a good book. In fact, Mark Twain called it, quote, chloroform in print 
<laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Mark. <laughs> heavy-handed a little. Slightly heavy-handed, man. Mark Twain had a lot to... He had a lot to say about the Mormons. He was quite... No, he had good hot takes. Yeah, he had real good he hot takes. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was the but, hot no, take guy is, at the time. I know he was, yeah. But, I mean... It was boring. <laughs> it's a boring ass book. It's fucking awful. It's so badly written. The characters are awful. Like it's such a bad book. But by the time Smith finished it, he was starting to realize that it didn't really matter how good the book was. Mm. He was starting to realize that it was not the story in the Book of Mormon itself that was grabbing followers. Rather, he found that the narrative that resonated most with people was the story of Joseph Smith. And at the time, the only people who really believed in Joseph Smith were his wife, a few buddies, and his family. But that was a start. And Smith started to think that maybe, just maybe, he had the makings of a church. Yeah, dude, that is fucking promote yourself wow. to God. And he is going to learn how to do this, and it's gonna, he's going to teach the people that follow him how to do this. And it's all about... Again, go for that ring, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but in order to do that, he had to take it just one step further with the dudes that were already in his corner. And one of Joseph Smith's many talents was the ability to induce visions in his followers. Now, I know this sounds kind of ridiculous, but it is possible to induce hallucinations without the use of hallucinogenic drugs, especially if the inductee is highly invested in experiencing a vision that day. Well, the way he put... The way he put visions to his people was essentially, if you don't believe in this, you are not a, you are not with me. You are not a part of this movement. And so I don't know if it's necessarily – you can induce hallucinations uh, definitely, especially by spiking their drinks with the ergot root. All it's, it's happening that's around at the time. Like all that kind of stuff is around natural hallucinogens. Or you just say, you better see this. Because if not, our friendship's over. Like, right. our relationship's over. Mm-hmm. So you'd be surprised what people say that they see when you're, like, trapped in that, like, essentially an ultimatum. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, Ben, I mean, you have you were went to a—you grew up in an evangelical church. Oh, like, yeah. You know how hardcore people can get when they really want to believe Dude, something. Dude, they will believe anything. I mean, the whole—getting—the um, uh, speaking in tongues and then having a pastor touch you. Laying of hands. You falling yeah. over, the laying yeah. of hands— People will uh, test their testimonies are straight up spiritual, magical, I mean, nonsense, but (laughs) nonetheless, they really do truly believe it, and it does alter their lives. Yeah, and although Joseph Smith had pretty much decided that a church was the way to go, his acolytes weren't so sure. So Joseph Smith started with Oliver Cowdery, and the two of them headed out into the woods in May of 1829. There, the two of them knelt and prayed, and eventually... Oliver Cowdery saw a vision of John the Baptist and yes. afterward became convinced that a church was the best way to go. And of course, John the Baptist in the vision says, you don't have to pay taxes. You are tax exempt if you're a church. Yes, you will collect all of your money. The government doesn't want your money. No, no taxes. Way. Tax exemption. John the Baptist, are you? Is that Rand Paul? <laughs> But here's the interesting thing about this vision. See, Oliver Cowdery later wised up and left the LDS. In fact, all of the early followers of the LDS eventually left Joseph Smith. But Oliver Cowdery still maintained until the day he died that on that day in the forest with Joseph Smith, he saw John the Baptist. Even though he said, Joseph Smith is full of shit, 
I don't believe him. I don't believe what he said. He still maintains, I saw an angel that day. I saw John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. There's a way of looking at life, a kind of cross-eyed way, where you can hold these two thoughts in your head at once. That on some level, he did present John the Baptist to himself in these moments in order to essentially live up to what Joseph Smith was putting him up to. Mm -hmm. Being like, you want to be in on this thing? You got to be able to lie like old Daddy Joey. You got to be able to spin the urn like I spin it. And so you're sitting there and you think about like, do I want to be vice president of this of this religion? Do I want to be the dude? Do I want to be a part of the thing? And you are sitting there and be like, I do believe in God and I'm waiting for it. And then you just see John the Baptist in a pile of bear shit. And you're like, there he is. Now I'm seeing it. And you could say that forever. Yeah. So pretty soon after that, Martin Harris and a new follower named David Whitmer joined Smith and Cowdery in the forest to see if they could repeat the visitation, or at least see something similar. And the four men prayed and prayed and prayed, but nothing happened. Finally, Martin Harris, played with doubt, just threw up. Just I don't want to happen, Joey. I'm just so nervous about seeing God and if he's going to say I'm too skinny. I hate when people make fun of me for how skinny I am. <laughs> and so the other men figured they weren't seeing visions because Martin was being all weird. And yeah, so he's fucking here, Martin. <laughs> he's ruining our whole vibe here, dude. So they said, go pray alone for a little while and then come back. But soon after, Martin came back and the visions began. And an angel appeared with the message that the golden plates and everything in them was in fact truth. <gasps> but here's another interesting thing about these visions. Even though the message was the same for all three men, all three of them had a completely different vision. And although all three of them later left the church, again, none of them ever went back on what they saw that day. All right. It was cool. induced. Like Joseph yeah. Smith, I mean, that is a, it is hypnotism. Mm-hmm. He is able to induce he is able to induce hallucinations in his followers. You get a group of people super gullible. You take them out into the woods. You're setting the scene. And, and you know, I'm going to say there's something to eventually the hermetic ability of Joseph Smith that he didn't realize that he was tapping into. And the idea of a group of people, like, I, I firmly believe this, and this concept of magical thought, right, where you can create this religious reality, in these moments, in these moments of high energy and high concentration, you have these visions and they do seem concrete and they are real to you. And if they right. are real to you, then in fact, they then become real. It's still then you're in a weird. It's still real to me, damn it. It's still real <laughs> <Yeah>. to me. <laughs> and what's even more interesting about this is that Martin Harris, even in his hallucination, he still saw the golden plates covered in cloth. Even his subconscious wouldn't let him break Joseph Smith's rules. Wow. I asked Moroni, is it okay if I bring like a welder's helmet? <laughs> Son in re- really protect me and seeing it because, oh boy, I'm as curious as a golf cat. <laughs> and when Martin Harris was asked by a lawyer later, was like, dude, come on. Like, did you actually see the plates? Like, even if they were wrapped in cloth, like, did you actually see them? Martin said, quote, I did not see them as I do that pencil case, yet I saw them with the eye of faith. Okay. So, so we, so just you as good. So you, it's really not, though, sir. Uh, so, <laughs> so you didn't see them then. You, take the word saw and put it in quotation marks. <laughs> 
what exactly is seeing anything, right? <laughs> well, like you're seeing <laughs> me now. What is and- seeing? C S E A. How you got two different words <laughs> with the same meaning? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> All right, just get your sandwich and go, please. <laughs> oh, thank God for this free sandwich. I can't afford lunch. My coupon's got all wet and rain. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, the vision that these men saw is now the introduction to the Book of Mormon. This is the proof. But still, this wasn't enough for Joseph Smith. If he was going to start a real church, he'd need more witnesses. So he drew up a second statement, an addendum called, And also the testimony of eight witnesses. Oh, oh eight, witnesses. eight witnesses. See, that's even more than the three. Wow. The witnesses, and they had to sign a document mm-hmm. where they all agreed. And he's like, see, it's legal. Yeah. Wow. It's legal they sign a piece of paper. They can't lie. Of course And not. sign a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, no one would ever do that. And these eight witnesses were three of Joseph's relatives and five members of the Whitmer family. And for this one, Joseph had to take it to the next level. After making all of them pray for hours upon hours, Joseph brought them into a room. He showed them a box and told them the golden plates are inside. (gasps) But when Joseph opened it, everyone said, ain't nothing in that box, Joseph. So Joseph chastised them for their lack of faith, told them that it was their fault that they didn't see anything, and he made them pray for another two hours. Yes, and then the next time they looked in the box, it was the head of Brad Pitt's (laughs) wife in the movie. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, it was wrath. No, when they open up the box, they think about this shit where Joseph's like, are you ready? Big day, huh? <laughs> Seeing the plates you've wanted to. Martin, I see you got sunglasses on. I just want you safe. Martin, I'm going to slap you. I'm going to beat the living shit out of you. I'm going to show you all right now. He opens up the sarcophagus and it's like, ha ha, gaze upon them. Nothing in there. And it's just wow. a room of dudes. Just like, where's that? <laughs> oh, my. And then you get yelled at. Wow. Yeah. Did lo- you ever come back and you got to pretend? Yeah. Lo and behold, after those two hours of praying were up, Joseph Smith opened up the box and everyone said, yeah, man. Brilliant. There they are, <laughs> Brilliant, man. dude. I love yep. it. Yes. Fucking, oh, shit, they got ridges and, yeah. <laughs> oh, I see the gold plates cool. in there. Yeah, it's your big plates. Yeah. What Fawn Brody says about these episodes, and I'm inclined to agree with her, is that these acts were not necessarily cynical, like, say, Jim Jones mm. was cynical. See, after the first two visions in the woods... Joseph Smith was starting to believe that he actually had the power to make these things happen. And in a way, he was making them happen. Even though they were hallucinations and not concrete angels and plates and such, these people actually believed what they were seeing was real. And Smith believed that he was responsible. Mm. He wakes up every day and he's like, I make people see Shit. Yeah. I do it. It's in my brain. Right. It's like Jeremy Renner putting together his new album of pop hits. <laughs> where he, Jeremy Renner believes that all of the people around him, the paid sound technicians and studio musicians, love his music. To have that confidence, that power, man, nothing can stop him. He's a superhero in more ways than one. And it was in this fog of newfound magical power that the Book of Mormon was finally put into print, 
using the money that Martin Harris made after he was made to sell his family's farm. Mm. And this could have been Joseph Smith putting Martin Harris in his place, as Martin Harris was getting a little vision happy, and he wasn't shy about telling people all about these weird-ass visions that he was having. I saw John the Baptist in a bucket. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, cool. He said he'd seen Jesus in the shape of a deer. He'd seen the devil covered in mousy fur. It was the little tiny devil, and he was brown, and it came into my house, and it was eating all my bread. And then I gave it a cookie, and it left, and I was like, I guess that's what happens when you give a devil a cookie. Interesting. Could have been a rat. (laughs) And Martin Harris was telling everyone that he'd had a vision that Mormonism was going to be so popular immediately that within eight years, America wouldn't even need a president. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, they certainly didn't need the Mormon one anyway. <laughs> In other words, Martin Harris was getting ahead of the game and making him give up everything he owned in order to put the word of God out into the world was a good way to remind him of just who was in charge yeah. here. Now, now, please just envision that you still have a house, because <laughs> you don't. I got a hammock, that's all I need. Me and this devil mouse that I've seemed to have befriended. And I feed him <laughs> little bits of corn, and he hangs in my pocket, and oh, I, you know what, the devil's not such a bad little mouse. <laughs> oh. Well, what Joseph Smith was telling him is, you don't have visions that tell the future of Mormonism. I have visions that tell the future of Mormonism. Sure, you can have these visions, you can do whatever you want. You don't tell people about these visions. You tell me these visions, and I decide Just, if these visions should be told to people. Sounds like two meth addicts arguing over the remote control. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, all right. <laughs> because that's the thing, is that like the visions that uh, Harris was having were stupid. Like I, I don't know. He is just nothing up. stupid about what I saw. I saw King Solomon in a bowl of soup. You did. That's not stupid. Hey, he's real. Well, Joseph Smith was starting to have a vision. And you can't have Martin Harris telling people that we're not going to have a president in eight years because that makes Mormons sound like a bunch of fucking idiots. Yeah, as opposed to, you know. <laughs> There's a line. There is a fine line that this man had to walk. Yes. That was one thing that uh, someone said about the Book of Mormon is that, you know, not many people saw the Book of Mormon. Maybe 1% of Americans actually saw and read the Book of Mormon. But out of the people that saw and read it and listened to Joseph Smith, a lot of those people ended up becoming Mormons. Mm. A lot of those people ended up becoming converted. And so... The Book of Mormon went into print and was first put on sale at a bookstore in Palmyra on March 26, 1830, and the first reviews were, to say the least, unkind. Oh. Hmm. The first review, published in the Rochester Daily Advertiser, featured the headline, Blasphemy, the Book of Mormon, alias the Golden Bible. Oh, they made it sound really freaking cool. They made it sound cool as it shit. It does. And this is what that review said. The Book of Mormon has been placed in our hands. A viler imposition was never practiced. It is an evidence of fraud, blasphemy, and credulity, shocking both to Christians and moralists. The author and proprietor is Joseph Smith, Jr., a fellow who by some hocus-pocus acquired such influence over a wealthy farmer of Wayne County that the latter mortgaged his farm for $3,000, which he paid for printing and binding 5,000 copies of the blasphemous work. But as Fom Brody wrote, and as Joseph Smith knew at the time, 
The success of Joseph Smith's church was not dependent on the quality of the Book of Mormon. It depended on Joseph Smith himself. Mm. And over the following 14 years, Joseph Smith would go from a 23-year-old former treasure hunter to the leader of a religion with its own militia that was bringing in followers by the thousands. That is, until Joseph Smith was dragged from a prison and murdered by a mob in 1844. And just how all of that happened is what we'll cover on Mormonism Part 3. All right, there it is, Mormonism Part 2. I mean, to be fair, the Mormon militia... Extremely tired. No coffee at all. <laughs> no no coffee? Like, come on. I mean, the, the Nazis were, were hyped up on mescaline and meth. Well, we'll find out what happens. Because they had coffee for a little while until he got a revelation that turned out that he had to stop pe- uh, people smoking and drinking coffee. We- we'll get into why that is. It's a little more domestic than you'd think it would be. Yeah. But this... The next section of this story is what's going to show the true potential of Joseph Smith. It's going to show his magical powers in full, full fruition. We're going to see him go from con man to religious zealot very, very quickly. And a lot of blood's going to get spilt. And we're going to see how that energy is the thing that's going to shuttle off Mormonism deep into 2019, where we almost had a fucking Mormon president. I mean, we never almost had one, well, we but he was close. He came kind of, kind of close. Yeah, he, came, did, he was close enough. enough. Yeah. Probably cost him the election, being a Mormon. Um, all right, there it is. Well, I hope someone can clean up. We need to get a Marty over there in the aisles to clean up all that blood, I guess, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Let's see. We are going to be in Europe, and I have to say, full disclosure, our European tour is basically sold out, which is a total miracle. Thank you all so much. We cannot wait. However, we still have some tickets, I believe, available in Bristol. So if you want to get on out there in Bristol, come on out. Uh, it'll be a blast. Uh, we also have t- tickets in Birmingham. And Birmingham. the bees. That's where we have yeah. the tickets. It's in Birmingham. Everything else completely sold out. Birmingham is the place where we got about a hundo tickets left. All right. Come check it out. Very excited to be in Europe. Oh my God, we're gonna be um, we're gonna drink a lot of beer. Yes, I cannot wait. We're gonna we have a couple of days off when we get to Dublin. I think we have a day or two, mm-hmm. and I'm just so excited to be there. Um, I'm gonna eat meat, drink Guinness, yeah. and have a little JMO. You have to have a Guinness with me, Marcus. I'll have a Guinness Straight with you. Straight out of the teat. I'll have it, man. Yeah, I'm gonna see if I can try to find my way out into the Irish countryside. You're going to fit right in. Be careful. (laughs) Please be careful. Um, All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting all the shows here on the Last Podcast Network. Check them all out. You're going to love them. And, um, yeah, I guess that's about it. Don't forget, hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Okay. Magustalations. Hail me. Man, oh, man. I can't wait to have some. I like some of my own secret underwear. It seems really comforting. What is that? Um, We'll get into it next week. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Because I'll buy some. You can. I think it would take... Like several pairs. Oh, they're tiny. <laughs> oh, you're you're well, just they're tiny. They're secret underwear. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> okay, I'll find the insult in there. <laughs> <laughs> this show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. <laughs>